Good morning. How's everyone doing today? This has been a very interesting uh, last couple weeks. Go from the Cubs winning the World Series to probably about the craziest election I think we'll have ever seen, at least in my lifetime. Uh, so it's been a very, very interesting week, and uh, I'm glad to uh, to be here now, where we can uh, trust and come to Jesus. Uh, the uh, the songs that we sing today are, are amazing, and they're just. Uh, Jehovah said, Can you is a great song in understanding and seeing the, the, the flow of the response to Jesus. And so now as we begin to draw near to the end of our series in the history of redemption over the next two months, we now reach the climax of his story. Since the beginning of the year, Cliff and a few other men of the church have journeyed through the Bible to demonstrate the single storyline that God has carefully woven throughout its passages. In last week's message, Cliff demonstrated the passions that drive and motivate Jesus. The passion for God's glory and the passion for the good of all people. Now this week I have been given the privilege to preach on the climax of this story. In what we often refer to as the passion of the Christ. In fact, it was 12 years ago now that Mel Gibson released the movie by the same title that detailed the events that unfold in this portion of Scripture. And these events that are included are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now without these events, Christianity would be rendered absolutely meaningless. These events are so important that to be without them, we would be in a position far beyond meaningless. Those words are too soft. Paul says that without the resurrection, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is vain and futile. I'll go ahead and pray for us. Dear Father, I thank you so much for today. Lord, I thank you for for your word. Lord, I thank you for for your son and for his death on the cross. Lord, I I thank you that you have come down onto this earth to save us. Lord, today I pray that you will speak to everyone here, Lord, that it will not be my words, but your words that are spoken, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you will be here with us as we look at what your son did for us on the cross. So now our faith, that Paul says would be vain of Utah, he actually goes further and explains this even more. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is to say, That if all we do is trust in Christ for hope while we exist on this earth and not in Him for all eternity, we should be the most pity of all people. In fact, if He did not die and rise again, then we have nothing. Without these events, we are pitiful. That is how important the events in this text are. Not only to understanding Christianity, but but to the entire redemptive narrative that runs throughout Scripture. The entirety of the Old Testament, clear back to Genesis, is written down over centuries in anticipation of this event. Today we will examine the passion of Christ that is in chapters 23 and 24 of Luke's Gospel. Now Luke's Gospel is unique because he was the only Gentile among the Gospel writers. He was was a Greek doctor that Paul referred to as his personal physician in his letter to Colossians to the Colossian church. 
Since Luke was not uh, present during Jesus' life, his narrative consists of eyewitness accounts. Therefore, the gospel is written like that of, of an investigator or a journalist with a great eye for detail. Everything included, he deemed to be a vital portion of the narrative. Now, as we look at these two chapters, we will see there are over a hundred verses contained in them. And within them, there are approximately 20 individuals or people groups that directly encounter Jesus or are observing the chain of events. The large number of characters feels a little like the current run of superhero movies. Rumor has it that one of the future Marvel movies will have 40 main characters. That's so many characters with so much story, you eventually just go, let's just see the action. However, today we will briefly examine the events of the Passion and then spend the rest of our time examining how the people responded to Jesus and how those parallel to our responses to Jesus today. So as chapter 23 starts in the middle of the Passion narrative, just at the tipping point in redemptive history is about to begin. It is now the morning after Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested, denied by Peter, beaten, and brought illegally before the high priestly council. The council then brings Jesus before Pilate and Herod to be tried. And the people press the leaders to punish him with death. At this point of the story, Luke strays from his attention to detail on key elements. And key elements you would expect to find go completely missing. You would expect Luke, a physician by trade, to include great detail about Jesus' death, but very little is found. Nevertheless, Luke is not unique in this area because the other Gospels also say very little. Very very little detail is provided into the horrific death, death that comes through crucifixion. There is no information of the nails and the severity of the nails into the hands and feet. There's no explanation into the cause of death on the cross by asphyxiation. They simply say they crucified him. We only know the severity of the crucifixion because of non-biblical history. Many sermons have been preached and ink dispensed in describing the passion. Therefore, I will not be spending time on those details today. Instead, we will focus on the results of the passion. In my preparation, I found Alistair Begg's series on Luke helpful to understanding this lack of detail. Alistair is a a Scottish pastor who serves at a church uh, at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. And he's the main speaker for Truth for Life radio ministry. And he says this about the writer's declaration, they crucified him. If they focus primarily on the physical suffering of Jesus, then the reader could readily stop at that. The reader could quickly look at the scene as described and mistakenly think that once I I have been gripped by, stirred, moved, and succumbed to this dreadful scene, that I have masked the metal of it. When in point of fact, to focus on the outward aspects, the physicality of the life, might be to overlook the deepest dimension of what the writer is saying. Now, of course, this runs contrary to Christian art, or contemporary religious art at least. 
the last 300 years of art is almost entirely focused on the suffering of Jesus. But clearly, sympathy for Jesus as the perfect sufferer stops short of faith in Jesus as the perfect Savior. A focus on Jesus as the perfect sufferer does not inevitably take a man or woman to faith in Jesus Christ as the perfect Savior. And it is for that reason, presumably, that the Gospel writers, the evangelists, have not sought to answer the question of what was the suffering like, but have essentially addressed the question, what did his suffering achieve? In other words, what was the purpose of these events as opposed to a preoccupation with the passion? You see, Beg is concerned with the unhealthy focus on Jesus' suffering will draw the hearer to a temporal suffering rather than turning our eyes to the eternal glory of our Savior. Otherwise, we flirt with the idea of keeping him on the cross rather than seeing him rise alive from the tomb. You see, Jesus going to the cross was merely the avenue or the roadmap that God used for his son to be punished for our sins. Only God was capable of coming to earth as a man to live a perfect life so he could receive the punishment for our sins. By living a perfect and holy life, Jesus was a sufficient sacrifice to take upon himself the sins of the world. Therefore, any focus upon the cross should be viewed entirely as God's mean to an end, which was Jesus' sacrificial death. However, keeping the focus on the cross misplaces the glory of God to an object. You see, Jesus' death is the, in the greater context of redemptive history was only part of the story. In Genesis 3.15, God pronounces a curse on the serpent and he tells him that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The cross was the ultimate fulfillment of this curse as the wound of the... Uh, as the wound of the to the, the serpent, sorry, the wound of the woman's offspring by the serpent, and Jesus would later defeat death, causing the head blow to the serpent when he was raised three days later. You see, his death alone was insufficient to defeat sin. However, his resurrection was the ultimate conqueror of death. As Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 20 to 24 says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is an amazing truth of the gospel, the good news. Jesus has taken on the sin of his people up to the cross and now those that put their trust in Jesus will partake in the resurrection with him. As a result of Jesus' death, sorry, as a result of Jesus' defeat of death, God's people receive eternal life. Those who trust in Jesus will avoid the wrath of God through eternal punishment that comes through sin. And they live on forever at his return. This is seen in the doctrine of glorification that says that in the last day we will, we will be taken up with him in glory to receive new bodies. 
And just as he ascended into heaven, we will one day be resurrected with perfect bodies to live with him and give him glory, honor, and praise. These three events, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, are the life of Christianity. And even as they are unfolding, the people responded with strong reactions as they encountered Jesus' demise. Therefore, I'd like to examine their responses to help us when we are the ones who are confronted with Jesus. <clears throat> so we'll first start with Herod in a search for the miraculous. See, this isn't the first time we see Herod in the Bible, but this isn't the Herod the Great who killed the children in the Christmas story. We first see Herod in Mark 16.29 as he beheads John the Baptist. If you remember the story, John has been in prison for rebuking Herod for taking his brother's wife, Herodias. And this makes Herodias angry, so he is imprisoned. Later at the banquet for his, with his military leaders, her daughter dances for Herod and his men. Now please don't picture this as a sweet ballet scene for dad. These, milita- these are military leaders and her dance was a little more NC-17 than we would probably like to see. Herod and the men are pleased with the dancing. So Herod makes a promise to her and promises her a gift, anything up to his kingdom. So she goes to her mother for advice and her mother requests the head of John the Baptist. And this grieves Herod. And we see in Mark's account in uh, chapter 6, verse 19 and uh, 20, it says, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. See, Herod knew he was righteous, so he didn't want to kill him, but he he was intrigued by the teaching. He wanted to know that truth. He was interested in it. But his current wife didn't. So prior to our current text, Herod had also, though, sought to kill Jesus. So as we uh, move forward into into the text where where Herod and Jesus finally meet, in Luke 23, 8 and 9, it says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. See, Herod had ignored the truth for so long that he fought, when he finally meets Jesus, Jesus leaves him with no response. He's silent. Herod appears to be beyond saving. And then, after some questioning, he finds no fault. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Do we know this man or woman? Are you potentially this man or woman who has heard the truth for so long? It's right in front of your face, but your conscience is seared. You don't hear it? Does your desire for the miraculous supersede your desire for the truth? Herod wanted a miracle, but received silence. And just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened, 
to complete God's purposes with freeing his people. So Herod's actions were used to demonstrate God's power. And at the end, Herod became a friend of Pilate rather than a friend of God. So pray that your heart or the heart of the loved ones you know will be softened by his truth. And next, we move on to Pilate. Now, Pilate was simply seeking his own good. In fact, in John's account of the Passion, Pilate is confronted confronted with his political status if he lets Jesus go free. The Pharisees remind him that if he lets him go free, he's no friend of Caesar's. However, Jesus is brought before Pilate twice, and each time he finds no fault in him. The first time he attempts to avoid making the judgment by simply sending Jesus to Herod. Unfortunately for Pilate, Herod sends him right back. And during the second examination, Pilate finds no fault in him three different times. He seeks to punish Jesus and then release him. Luke 23-25 says, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The people's uh, the, or, the people refused Jesus and pressure Pilate, yelling at him, "Crucify him, crucify him!" And eventually, the people decided that they would rather have Barnabas, a murderer, and a known instigator of riots, instead of Jesus. And Pilate bows down to their their desires, as opposed to going with the truth and finding no fault. And the innocent Jesus becomes the visible sacrifice of a murderer and an unknown sacrifice for the rest of them. All of this happens because Pilate breaks under pressure rather than standing for the truth. And even after Pilate had discovered the truth, his choice was still to have Jesus crucified. How often are we like Pilate when we discover the truth? When it's staring us in the face but we allow the pressures of this world to help us crumble. Just as Steve mentioned earlier that in other countries they can't even teach their own children and how that pressure goes. It's an amazing thing that, that to how we can stand for Christ still even amongst those pressures. Now Jesus is not physically standing with us today. We did not see Jesus die on the cross We cannot see him be lifted between the two criminals. We did not see him resurrected from the dead. And we did not see him ascend to the heavens. Yet this man had Jesus in front of him and he collapsed and denied the truth. How often do we allow the pressures of pleasing men be our justification for breaking (coughs) and ignoring God's truth? If you are here today wavering on the truth, Pray that God will give you the strength to stand on the truth with Him. You know, and and as part of this, we move and we look at those who 
knew Jesus, who were with him daily. There were the disciples, but then there were the scribes, the Pharisees. They're the only reason Jesus is standing trial before Pilate and Herod. Scribes, Pharisees, high priestly council. They had already had the illegal trial overnight. And now they're bringing them with different charges. Day in and day out, they stood around as his deepest critics, just waiting for the day that they can finally be rid of him. Many times they sought to put him away quietly, but that was not God's plan. Now they're charging, (coughs) they're bringing charges on the busiest day in all of Jerusalem. After bringing him to Pilate, they accuse him in Luke 23, 2. It says, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to, he, to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. However, this is not their real argument. They are so zealous to protect their understanding of God's law that they miss what Jesus tells them. While questioning him in the previous chapter, their true accusations are revealed. Luke twenty-two sixty-seven to 71. He says, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. For from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they, they, they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said, he said to them, yes, or you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They are accusing him of blasphemy. As a mere man in their eyes, he is claiming to be God. This is appalling to them. And they would rather not see Jesus for who he is. So they reject him as God. They love their understanding of the law and it blinds them. So they are unable to see the truth. Instead of accepting Jesus for who he claims to be, they reject him. Instead, they seek a murderer rather than God. This added attention to the law without the relationship is the worst I have ever seen in my life, as we have in our culture right now. I've been amazed this week, especially on social media, how many people are busy telling everyone else how they need to respond to this election. Every group on every side has been creating vague generalities which has resulted in people being placed into one or two boxes. Too many bloggers, commenters, and writers are busy creating new laws of discourse for people rather than actually being engaged in civil discourse. And this is the same problem that we see in the Pharisees. They were so busy making laws of interaction, they failed to see the relationship they needed with God. Are you in this place? Are the laws you have created in your life hindering you from knowing God? Are you creating laws for friends, neighbors, teachers, or loved ones that are impossible to reach? Are you more focused on others' flaws that you cannot be compassionate to them? Pray that our desire to see others become obedient followers of Christ 
is driven by grace, by his grace. And pray that his grace supersedes performance. And now let's fast forward to Jesus actually being on the cross. Remember, we're only addressing a few of those characters, those 20 people, groups, and characters at this time. But I want to encourage you to read the rest. The story is, it is it's intriguing to see how everybody has responded. But now I want to turn to the pair that hung next to Jesus on the cross. These two men are guilty of their crimes. However, they have drastically different responses to Jesus. The one joins in with the crowd by mocking him out of selfish desire for his life to be saved. In Luke 23, 39, the first criminal, or it says, one of the criminals who were hanging railed against him, or railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He wants Jesus to come off the cross and take him down as well so that he can continue in the pleasure of this world. He is calling out. His calling out is one of mockery and contempt. And yet the other man, knowing his crimes and the outcome that he is facing, is brought to absolute brokenness in life. All he can do is ask for mercy. But all he asks Jesus is to be remembered. He's not asking anything else but just to be remembered. And Jesus recognizes that brokenness and says that he will be with him in paradise. With his last breath, he defends Jesus to the other criminal. In Luke 23, 40, it says, But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How many of us here today or at one time were the second man? Or our circumstances had become so difficult that we felt completely broken? How many of us have felt that there's been nowhere else to go? And for those who have been there and know Jesus, how glorious is it that we can come to Him daily for that strength to move forward. And for those that don't know Jesus, whose brokenness seems so difficult, and you don't know where to go, what is stopping you from trusting Him today? Because your strength has clearly failed you. Your decisions have clearly failed you. Seek out Jesus, for He is good. No, you don't have to be completely broken to come to Him. And for those who may not be broken, whose pride is like that of the first criminal, (laughs) your pride is there and you can't even see it, you can't understand it, Look, all, look back at Peter 
in chapter 22. He's the most prideful of the apostles. He was so bad that Jesus called him Satan to make a point. Peter was broken after his pride said he would, uh, he would never deny Christ. However, he did not even have the courage to tell the truth, even among the people. And he denied Jesus three times when, he, when nothing was even on the line. Do you think your confidence outside of Christ will stand forever? Do you think you're above being broken? The first criminal on the cross did not think he was broken. And his stubborn pride clung to this life even when death was imminent. I pray that your pride will allow you the opportunity to see the gloriousness of Jesus. For he is the only one that can move you away from your sins, from your rebellion, away from your pride, and out from under the punishment of sin because of the passion of Christ. You cannot expect salvation while clinging to sin. And now our final group. This group was already following him throughout his life. And unfortunately, within following him, they're now absolutely devastated. You see, they expected an earthly king in Jesus that was going to overtake the oppression of Rome over the Jews. But he had other plans. And as a result, his disciples were destroyed inside. The darkness fell over them because their Messiah was gone. They did not know. They did not understand. But after he rose again, Jesus walked with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. But they had no clue. They were devastated and blinded by their expectations that they failed to see the true Jesus was right there in front of them. During their seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, he poured out through the Scriptures, explaining what had taken place. Walking seven miles, so it's quite a bit of time there, right? I, mean, I think uh, Stephen was telling me he ran, ran a seven-minute mile or so in cross-country. So I just think, you know, that's running. How long would that have been? I mean, we're talking a good hour in time for, uh, to be able to walk that distance between Jerusalem and, and Damascus. So the information that he could have poured out to them it is amazing. But the interesting thing, it wasn't until they invited him into his home and they asked him to pray for the meal and he broke the bread and blessed the bread that it made sense. It's interesting that it was the broken body that symbolized in broken bread that their eyes were open to what he accomplished on the cross. Luke 23, 30-33 says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were there with him gathered together. 
the truth was finally so real that they felt the stirring in their hearts. And then, at that exact hour, that just moments before they had been concerned about Jesus' safety because it was late and dangerous, they immediately ran to Jerusalem. They went to the other disciples. They had the, the drive and the passion to finally go and speak of who Jesus was. They went on with a heart to serve the Master who had risen from the dead. <clears throat> and how many of us are still there? How many of us struggle to realize and focus on whether or not He's really there? How many of you are not sure what it really means? And there is a level of blindness. Are you trying to hash through these experiences and wonder if they are real? Are you trying to figure out if Christianity is just another myth along with other gods like Zeus or Poseidon? And how many of you have heard the stories, but you just need this Christianity thing explained to you? Please don't hesitate to come talk to me or Cliff or any of the elders. We have many men and women in this church who have lived Christianity and lived for Christ for a lifetime. And they will all be able to help you unfold what this may mean for you. The scriptures are sufficient, speaking truth to everything in life. Please do not walk away simply believing this is another fairy tale or myth. Please take the time to consider this seriously for your life. The Bible has stood the test of 2,000 years, providing truth that gives strength to those who know Him. So the big question is today, how, do you, how are you going to respond to Him? Where are you in your life today? Are your sins so blinding that you fear your heart has been hardened? As Herod's, pray that God will soften your heart and reveal himself to you because he will never leave you beyond his he will never leave you beyond his reach if you are seeking him. Do you know the truth but allow others to get in your head? Do you allow others to pressure you to deny the truth? Pray that you will have the strength to rest in his truth regardless of what the world says. Are you holding fast to laws that are unattainable? And are you holding others to their laws? Remember that God's grace is sufficient, sufficient to cover all sins. No one has sinned so bad they cannot be saved. Are you one of the two criminals on the cross who've never had peace in their life? You've never had peace in your life because of your sin? Are you the one who just wants to get off the cross so you can continue in the prison that you built for yourself? Are you so proud that you can't even come to realize how bad things are for you? Are you the broken thief who knowing he's at his last, completely broken and has nowhere else to go? Look to Jesus and see that there's mercy and compassion there. 
You don't just have to be remembered. You can be His. Is your greatest desire to have someone think of you because your life has been worthless to this point? No matter which stage you are at in life, He will be there. He is there. All you have to do is trust in Him. And finally, are you following Him? Christian, do you have that burning drive to run out and share your faith because of what He has done for you? Do you want to follow, but you simply don't know if you can trust what He says? And are you wanting to find something to follow, but it just doesn't make sense? Know that there are people here There are people in ministries across the nation, across the world, who daily trust in Him because they see where the truth lies and look there because that's where the truth is. And salvation is there if you trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank You so much for today. Lord, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You for His death on the cross. Lord, we thank You that our sins are forgiven. Lord, that we don't have to work off the wrath that is being an enemy of God because of your Son. That as we trust in Jesus, we have strength and glory there. That we get to glorify Him for eternity when we trust Him. Lord, we pray that everyone can realize and come to the understanding of the truth that is the passion of Christ. That this truth can lead us to the Savior. Our truth leads us to a God that has come out of the heavens to His people to save His people. Lord, we thank You for sending Your Son to die on the cross. And Lord, we pray that we can respond to You with humility to know that Your truth is right and what Your Word says is true. In Your Son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.